0: Each year we celebrate Earth Day, and each year our collective actions lead to more greenhouse gas emissions, more habitat destruction, and more species extinctions. It's hard for Earth Day not to feel like more of a superficial patting of ourselves on the back, or a greenwashing opportunity for corporate sponsors, than a serious call for transformative change. The first Earth Day, on April 22, 1970, was something totally different with 12,000 events across the country and more than 35,000 speakers from every walk of life. Young and old, scientists and preachers, liberals and conservatives, the transformative power of the first Earth Day, conceived as a teach-in rather than a rally or a protest, is hard for us to imagine in our contemporary era of stark political polarization, hashtag protests, and climate denial politics. Adam Rome is an environmental historian who digs deep into the historical record and emerges with profound insights about the first Earth Day and the origins of the environmental movement. His work reveals the vital importance of understanding our environmental history in order to forge a more promising environmental future.
1: But mobilizing isn't organizing. Uh, And mobilizing isn't empowering. It doesn't take people new places. You know, and and you think about other, you know, Advertising isn't about teaching you anything. It's about getting you to buy, you know, something. Political messaging isn't about educating you. It's about getting you to vote for this guy or woman rather than that person. So it's, it's yes or no, you know. Uh, Earth Day, the original Earth Day, was so much more complicated than that. It left it up to millions of individuals to say, what does this mean to me? What am I going to do? Um, it didn't try to marshal them all in one direction or to enlist them into a pre-existing cause.
0: I'm John Fiege, and this is Chrysalis. Adam Rome was my advisor many years ago when I studied environmental history and cultural geography in graduate school at Penn State. And now I'm very happy that he's my good friend and colleague here at the University of Buffalo, where he's professor of environment and sustainability. My conversation with Adam travels through history, long before and after the first Earth Day, from beaver hats in feudal Europe to the post World War II era of prosperity and suburban development, and up to the present as he probes the business world's attempts to become more sustainable. Here is Adam Rome. If, if you could just tell, tell me a bit about where you grew up and about your relationship to the rest of nature when you were a kid.
1: I grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut. The town itself is a couple hundred years old, um, but the particular house that I grew up in was in a... Uh, was built in the late 1950s in what had been a golf course. For some reason, the golf course moved a mile away. And, and so when I was growing up, the former golf course was being slowly developed. Uh-huh. Uh, and in fact, I remember one day, I don't know how old I was, maybe eight, seeing bulldozers come and knocking trees down on one of the nearby yards that... That was undeveloped still, uh, and that I think was really crucial, even more than the wilder places that I used to hang out. Um, that a couple friends and I would go in the wild parts, the still undeveloped parts of the old golf course. And back then, parents weren't worried about their kids in the way they are now. So my parents had a a big cowbell on their front porch and when it was you know 15 minutes to dinner time they would ring the cowbell and i could hear uh-huh. it anywhere in the neighborhood <laughs>
0: uh-huh.
1: uh, and come home and
0: that's so idyllic uh,
1: but it was a very typical 50s suburban neighborhood
0: so you you went to college at Yale and then you were a Rhodes scholar at Oxford and then you landed in Kansas um can you tell me the story of how you got to Kansas and what you did when you were there
1: Kansas interestingly i'll answer your question in a second but but um i had a much much more overwhelming uh emotional response to the landscape in kansas than i ever did to any place around where i grew up you know that that one, why do you think that was i i think i i loved the the vastness of the sky i loved the spectacular sunsets uh I, I loved watching clouds move through the sky. I mean, you know, there's, there's no tall buildings, even in the cities in Kansas, compared to the Northeast. Uh, so uh, you could see forever. And, uh, and, and, the, and another thing that I really loved was, uh, especially in the western two-thirds of the state. Wherever there was a river, you, you could tell that 15 or 20 miles away because that would be the only place there would be trees.
2: Right, <laughs> right. And, right.
1: and I, I love that the landscape was so powerful a presence. Everybody thought about it all the time.
0: So you eventually landed at University of Kansas studying environmental history under Don Wooster, who's one of the, the great minds and founders of the discipline. Tell me what you got. What got you interested in environmental history? Had you done anything with that prior to graduate school, and, and how did you come with how did you come to to work with Don Wooster?
1: Environmental history really didn't exist as a field, or at least it was in its most infant stage when I was in college, which was nineteen seventy six to nineteen eighty. I, I actually got introduced to Don's work and to one other really renowned, now renowned, environmental historian. Um, through this uh, humanities project that I did about the little known historical places. One of them was a place that during the Dust Bowl years of the 1930s when the Great Plains were decimated by these unbelievable wind storms that, that made you know parts of Kansas look like Cape Cod, the dunes on Cape Cod that I had seen as a kid, um, mm-hmm. devastating dust storms. And uh, the government tried to reclaim some of those lands. It was really a pioneering effort of environmental restoration or ecological restoration. Mm-hmm. And and so there was this Cimarron grasslands in the very southwest corner of the state. It was one of the little known historical places that I wrote about. And the background work that I did for that involved Don Worcester's first uh, prize-winning book, which is just called Dust Bowl. And that book blew me away. I, I'd never imagined that that you could uh, r- write a history that combined environmental history and political history. Um, and and it's really a, an effort to understand the dust storms, not as a purely natural phenomenon, but as something that had been partly, maybe even predominantly caused by human activity in the decades leading up to it. Uh, and right. And I read that book and it blew me away. And then right after that, I discovered this one other book that had just come out by William Cronin called Changes in the Land, which is about uh, Native Americans and English colonists in New England uh, and all the ways in which they changed the the landscape that the the colonists did. Uh, And it it gave a new way of understanding why the colonists were able to supplant the natives, uh, but it also had some brilliant ideas about basic ways that we think about about nature.
0: Let's turn to your first book, which is The Bulldozer in the Countryside. Um, and it's a it's a powerful environmental history of suburbia in America and how after World War II, developers brought Henry Ford's assembly line concept to the production of cheap tract housing on cheap land on, on the outskirts of cities across the country. Um, I want to uh, read a passage from the book, but first, could you talk about how the suburbs were created, and give us a sense of the scale at which this transformation of the countryside took place.
1: First, you have to keep in mind that before World War II, um, not counting farm areas where home ownership was much more common, uh, in cities there had never been a point where more than forty percent of Americans owned their own home,
2: uh-huh. uh, and
1: and home building in those decades was was really a a mom and pop kind of thing i mean it was it was a craft it wasn't it wasn't an industry uh, a lot of home builders might only build one or two houses a year so after world war ii most famously in levittown new york and then several other levittowns but mimicked all across the country uh, people figured out a way to to turn to, to mass produce housing, and uh, in order to do that, they also needed cheap land uh, and, and large tracts of cheap land. So, although some of these post-war subdivisions that were mass produced were within the boundaries of cities, most of them weren't, because the land that was cheap and widely available was was outside the city limits. Right. And so, uh, and all kinds of new uh, earth. Moving equipment, especially the bulldozer, had come into common usage during World War II, and it became possible to 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 turn almost any kind of landscape, uh, you know, a marsh, a steep hillside, a forest, uh, into a flat pad. That's like a technical right. term, <laughs> pad, <laughs> um, for building, uh, and and then breaking down the construction process into, you know, I don't remember the exact number, but let's say twenty different components. So, you know, one crew would, would just bring the the wood for the roofing, you know, or another would just do the bathroom or, um, and they could do, uh, in the case of Levantown, you know, 17,000 houses in, 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 a, you know, a year or two. Right. Um, and, and so, um, uh, the new, the combination of the new mass production method of building houses and then, unbelievable pent-up demand for housing because there'd been virtually no housing construction during the Great Depression in the 1930s and then virtually no housing construction during World War II. Uh, And there's then the baby boom after the war. So you've got millions and millions of people desperate for places to live. They didn't necessarily want to live in the suburbs, but they wanted a place to live and and an affordable place. And it was often cheaper to buy a Levittown house than to rent an apartment in a city. So these, uh, and by the late 40s, early 50s, um, two million homes a year are getting built, which is an astonishing number. I don't think it had ever been more than 400,000 in a year in American right. history up to that point. So oh, wow. uh, a territory the size of Rhode Island, basically every year is getting turned into New subdivisions, mostly in suburbs, and that—that was, I I write in my book, that was an whatever else it was, it was an environmental disaster on the scale of the Dust Bowl.
0: Right, right. Just clearing all that land. Yeah, yeah. I I grew up in uh, Greenbelt, Maryland, one of Eleanor Roosevelt's planned communities. Um, Yeah, from the '30s. from the thirties. So it was kind of pre, pre (laughs) post-war suburban development, but it was right on the outskirts of Washington, DC, and, you know, had a little bit more of a idyllic, um, you know, communitarian feel to it than, than the later suburbs. Um, so with your book, let me, let me read a quote. You, you, you quote, um, the writer Margot Tuper. Oh, yes. <laughs> who, like millions of Americans moved with her family to the suburbs after World War II.
1: In Maryland.
0: Oh, really? Was that Maryland? Yeah. I didn't realize that. Oh, that's interesting. Well, let me read the quote. So she might've been your movie. neighbor. Yeah, wow, I had no idea. Um, so let me, it's a kind of a long quote, but I think it's worth reading yep. because it's so, it's so rich. <laughs> At that time, our house was second from the last on the dead-end street. Beyond were acres of untouched woodlands, which were a refuge for children, a place to play in natural surroundings. Youngsters in the neighborhood would go there, build dams or catch minnows in a little creek, gather wildflowers and pick blossoms from the white dogwoods. They built treehouses, picnicked under the tall tulip trees, and dug jack-in-the-pulpits, wild fern and violets to transplant to their gardens. Then one day, my little girl, Jan, ran into the house shouting, Mother, there's a bulldozer up the street. The men say they're going to cut down the trees. They can't do that. They're my trees. Where will we play? Please, Mother, please stop them. Jan ran frantically out the door, shouting, I'll get Susan, Georgie, Sissy, and all the other children. If they're going to take our woods away, we'll have to save all we can. The children returned several hours later pulling wagons loaded with flowers and plants. Jan brought home a small dogwood tree and planted it among the wildflowers in the South Garden. Indeed, the bulldozers did come. These huge earth-eating machines raped the woods, filled up the creek, buried the wildflowers, and frightened away the rabbits and the birds. The power saws came too, and took part in the murder of the woodlands near our home. Dynamite blasted out the huge tree roots. Trucks roared past our house, carrying the remains, sections of murdered trees, and tons of earth in which were buried vines, shrubs, and flowers. Then the dozers came to level the earth, and power shovels to dig great holes. In less than a month, the first of two hundred look-alike, closely set, small houses rose to take the place of our beautiful forest. At the heart of your book is this great irony. That the experience, the experiences of suburbanites like Margot Tupper and her family, who witnessed the destruction on the front lines of suburban development firsthand out their front windows, helped ignite the environmental movement. In the 1950s and 60s, the majority of women had not yet entered the labor force. And it was women in particular who spearheaded the new environmental movement. Can you can you talk about um, what Margo is writing there and, and how this played out?
1: Yeah. So that book came out in 1965, as I recall. And, um, at that point there had already been maybe I'd say for six, seven years mounting concern for lots of reasons, but, but one of them was the, the destruction of places for kids to play. And, and yeah, there's a powerful irony that um the house that she lived in and and her, and her daughter <laughs> and all the neighbors that her daughter played with. Right. You know, th- that had been something wild too before it was made into their house. Um and it, it, uh, it you know, it it might have been that, that that an an earlier generation would have cried about that, you know, earlier generation means like a year or two before. <laughs> Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, she herself was sensitive to that. She doesn't, she doesn't want there to be no development at all, but she's part of a movement to try to imagine land saving ways of development, ways of having same number of people have places to live, even single family homes, but clustered together with, with much larger open space that wasn't just yard, but was truly wilder. Uh, and, and, and th- that was, that keeps getting rediscovered by the way, you know, every like 10 years, people, <laughs> people realize that's an interesting idea. Um, it's never become the, the norm. Right. But, but yeah, my, my whole book is really about people coming to realize that what, and this is a part of a broader story in world after World War II that, you know, we have all these amazing technological changes and, and new products, new ways of doing things that, that seem miraculous. They, they allow us to, to have comfort and convenience and, and wealth on a scale that we hadn't imagined before. But they turn out to also have incredibly bad, uh, unexpected environmental costs. And, and so my, my book is really the story of how people try to come to terms with that. How do they try to reduce the cost of suburban development? Without ending it, you know, that, that, that they weren't saying no development at all. No one was. But, but trying to figure out ways of meeting the need. Uh, and, and even that's an interesting question. You know, what what do we need in housing? What is a good house? Um, but how do you do that at, at much less environmental cost? And it turned out that, you know, I was really stunned. I, I didn't think anyone would have been thinking about that until the 1970s. Uh, after the first Earth Day and after the, you know, the whole environmental movement is obviously roaring along. But in fact, I found that even in the midst of World War II, people were beginning to to find fault with some aspects of this new way of building. And with each decade, more and more of these horrid side effects come to light. And some of them become only of concern to experts, but, um, open space in particular led to real grassroots activism, real grassroots protests, uh, and, and a new language, you know, she writes about rape, uh, and no one had talked like that before. Not even John Muir when he was talking about the destruction of wild spaces. Uh, he came close, but, um, but this was so much more intimate than you know some spectacular place in Yosemite Valley getting destroyed for a dam. This this was your backyard, this was the place your kid played, uh, and and people start putting the word progress in quotation marks. You know that that it's not obvious to them anymore that 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 these new homes are 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 just purely good. Uh, so that's something radically new.
0: Yeah, and you y- you bring up property rights. Um, in the book and kind of relates to what you're saying about Margot Tupper being part of this movement to have more land in common, open space. Um, and th- the new ecological thinking that emerged in this era um, began to challenge and redefine property rights. Can you can you talk a little bit about that and, and how that became a central issue in the, the struggle to protect ecological health?
1: Yeah, this was another huge surprise to me um, that, uh you know it with pollution it 's obvious that the, uh, the the biggest polluters are businesses and and so challenging the corporate polluters is is part of a long tradition of trying to rein in corporate power uh, but there aren 't you know billions of corporations or millions of corporations there's there 's only hundreds of really big ones um with with property millions and millions of people own property Uh, and it had been part of american history that um, owning property was easy here which it wasn't in europe and ordinary people could own property and they could do with it whatever they wanted that you know that was one of the great freedoms of america in in the minds of many people that came here from europe Uh, and by the 1960s people are coming to realize not just with home building Uh, with development of all kinds that the way you used your land couldn't really be entirely private decision because it had consequences beyond the boundaries of your property. And, and people talked about this in the sixties as a quiet revolution, the growing awareness, both in the courts uh, and, and in state legislatures and, and in national forums that, that, um, how you used your land, how you developed it, especially, could have far-reaching detrimental consequences to the public good, and that therefore the public ought to have some say in what you did. Didn't necessarily mean that it would that that it would bar you from doing certain things, although people s- said that too. You know, uh, in the same way that you're not allowed to sell tainted meat, you know, you shouldn't be able to right. build in a wetland if that's going to cause flooding somewhere else. Uh, Or you shouldn't be able to build on a hillside if that's going to endanger um, people who own property lower down the hill or, you know, any number of things of that kind where um, how you use the land could have far-reaching implications beyond your borders. And, you know, that idea then eventually led to a powerful counterattack. People talked about it as, you know, the, the new regulations that come in the 1960s. And early seventies as a, as a new feudalism, the opponents called it. So mm. feudalism was mm-hmm. you know pre capitalist way of of thinking about rights and responsibilities that came with land ownership and only a few people could use it and they you know they had to use it in a way that served the community, whether they wanted to or not. Uh, so that's part of the powerful cons- the rise of modern conservatism. Part of the rise of Ronald Reagan uh, was this idea that that uh, among those who own property that that didn't accept that idea that it was really a matter of public interest they wanted to go back to the days when they could do whatever they wanted with their land
0: right right oh that's so interesting and I I, I love the title of your book the bulldozer in the countryside it paints such a vivid visceral image and and you mentioned somewhere that that it echoes the machine in the garden the this book by Leo Marx can you talk about that book and and how it relates to your work
1: yeah Leo Marx uh, I'm not sure if he's still alive uh, I, I did meet he he was a professor for a long time at MIT and I did meet him when I spoke there more than a decade ago but he wrote this brilliant book it's one of the most famous books that any American scholar has ever written in the humanities um, called the machine in the garden and it it's it's a it's a study of the literary responses in America, although it starts with Shakespeare and *The Tempest*, so imagining America um, to the uh, spread of technology, of development of modern civilization into seemingly pristine I- areas, mm-hmm. and 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 um, and and for for much of early American history. People just thought that was great, you know. That was fulfilling a biblical injunction to subdue the earth to right. to to make to make the wild spaces into a productive garden. Um, but but by the time of Thoreau and others in the you know eighteen thirties, eighteen forties, eighteen fifties, people are starting to have at least a very elite, well educated um, group of artists and writers more mixed feelings about that. They they. They know it's part of America's destiny, seemingly to to um, transform the wilderness, but they also lament some of the consequences of that. Right. And and um, the the machine in the garden in in Leo Marx is is the railroad. That that was the great symbol. Once the railroad came, everything was going mm-hmm. to change. And uh, um, and the and the railroad goes right through Concord. Thoreau could hear it. Nathaniel Hawthorne could hear it. Wow. Um, so I, I took that image, uh, and actually the publisher didn't like the title. <laughs> I had to fight for it. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, oh, wow. and and if it was, if it was a trade press, I would have lost. They would have been able to title it what they want, but because it was a university uh-huh. press, I, I won.
0: Great. Well, moving on from the suburbs, let's talk about Rachel Carson, who's one of my heroes. Mine too. <laughs> um, You wrote an article about her legacy that began this way. In the decades after World War II, many Americans imagined that modern technology finally would free humanity from the constraints and burdens of nature. We would overcome disease, moderate the extremes of climate, travel great distances in a flash, and enjoy abundance of all kinds. Detergents would get clothes cleaner than clean, Nuclear fission would generate electricity too cheap to meter. Plastics, seemingly inexhaustible and infinitely malleable, would end our dependence on scarce natural resources. Bulldozers would transform marshes and steep hillsides into buildable land. Soon, we would live on a perfected earth where everything was easy, comfortable, and safe. And then enter Rachel Carson and her landmark 1962 book, Silent Spring. What did she what did she bring what what did she bring to that mentality that was really dominant uh in the 50s and 60s?
1: You know, because we live in a post Rachel Carson world, it's so hard in some ways to imagine just how gung-ho people were, especially Americans, but it wasn't it wasn't unique to us uh after World War II. The idea that that we that we could conquer nature, that we could overcome any natural limit, uh, and you know, because nowadays we we all think we love nature, <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, but we're never as honest as we should be about the fact that there are a lot of elements of nature that we don't love, maybe even hate, um, and and a lot of those are limits. Uh, most obvious one is death you know Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. Um, but that was another thing that people thought they could conquer you know that that they thought Mm -hmm. modern medicine might allow a kind of immortality almost right um so there's this tremendous faith that in the 50s and 60s that we're bringing nature under control and that we are you know incredibly rapidly overcoming all these natural limits and and rachel carson is Probably the I mean lots of people began to have doubts about that, but I would say she is by far the most powerful voice, and it's so amazing. It's just this lone voice, this one woman. She had no institutional. By the time she wrote Silent Spring, she's just a writer. Right. Uh, she has no institutional support, um, and she's taking on one of the most powerful industries in the country, and she's taking on even more powerfully. Uh, this whole way of thinking about what our relationship to nature should be and saying no it can't possibly be conquest you know nature is bigger than us we we can't conquer nature uh, and when we try uh, w- w- we we may get a lot out of it in the short run but in the long run we're we're risking undermining the foundations of our life and and her warning is about that they were specifically about the new chemical pesticides that came into wide use after World War II, like DDT, but but she was really attacking much more broadly a whole kind of technological hubris uh, of thinking that we could change nature in any way and that it would just be for the good. You know, it would be better. We could make a better nature than nature had made, and and she said that's preposterous, and and ultimately, it it threatens our survival. But even if it didn't threaten our survival, it also was was um you know she had different adjectives for it an immature way of thinking uh, a a brute way of thinking uh an immoral way of thinking uh you know that 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 she too was saying we could do better that, that's not our best self our best self would be finding a way to to um thrive while everything else also thrives
0: right but but you do point out that despite the huge impact of silent spring And the government regulation of pesticides that followed, you you write, we use more pesticides now than in 1962. Yeah. And which makes me think, like, has the change been in our mentality and our actions? Or has it been in our messaging and our vision of ourselves? Like, have we covered things up, but not really dealt with the underlying problems that continue in different forms?
1: So... So one of the reasons why pesticide use is up—it's not just up in the U.S., but um, but a, but a lot of other parts of the world have developed industrialized agriculture that relies heavily on pesticides, and and uh, and that's true about a lot of things. You know, our air is cleaner, our water is cleaner. Mm-hmm. But that's partly because we don't make stuff here as much as we used to. it's made in China or Vietnam or wherever, and yep. their air is not cleaner <laughs> their, right. you know they're've exported
0: is, we've yeah. exported our pollution yeah
1: we've we've outsourced our pollution as well as a lot of our manufacturing jobs and you know i I go back and forth about this i I, I have a split personality on on the one hand i 'm dr Earth Day <laughs> You know, so I, I, I've i spent a lot of time thinking about environmental activism in the U.S. in the last 150 years and how much more powerful environmental activists have become than they were. Uh, and that's an inspiring story,
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know. But then the other side of me is Mr. Apocalypse <laughs> and, you know. All the ways in which things just keep getting worse, or at least they're still incredibly threatening, right? And and I'm trying to understand why. You know, without understanding why, we can't possibly hope to to avoid those outcomes.
0: So that's a great place to jump to your next book, uh, which is The Genius of Earth Day, with a subtitle: How a 1970 teach-in unexpectedly made the first green generation. Can you? paint a picture for us of the state of the environment on the eve of the first earth day on april 22nd 1970
1: yeah it's so hard to imagine now just how much more polluted visibly polluted the country was in 1970 um you know every city was just full of smoke of all kinds um and uh uh, you know, smoke from, from, um, burning trash from incinerators, folks from utilities, from manufacturers, on and on cement places. Uh, the waters were just horrid. You know, you couldn't swim in most urban rivers and many even rural ones. Uh, you couldn't eat the fish safely. You couldn't do a lot of other recreational things. You know the, the waters would smell. They'd be, they might be acidic. They might even burn you if you fell in. Um, you certainly couldn't drink them, uh, and uh, there was no regulation of waste disposal of any kind. Not just ordinary trash, but hazardous, what we now call hazardous waste. That phrase hadn't been invented yet. Oh wow! There was no regulation of it, so people could just dump incredibly toxic stuff wherever they wanted and uh even you know things you you could barely imagine when i was in kansas canoeing down the biggest river in the middle of the state which in kansas is called the (laughs) arkansas of course um you know you'd see rusted hulks of cars on the riverbanks you know that people would take out the few valuable parts of the car that they could sell and and then they just dump them on the riverbank and they were just mm-hmm. sitting there decades later. So, um, you know, uh, uh, everywhere people were aware. They, they, and this wasn't like news, you could see it every day. Um, but what was missing was the will to do something about it. It had always been considered the price of progress. You know, as part of a booming economy, we had to put up with pollution, especially in cities. And uh, finally, in 1970, after you know um, growing discontent, that leads to the modern environmental movement and to the first Earth Day.
0: On January 18, 1970, Senator Nelson's Environmental Teaching Committee took out a full-page ad in the New York Times, announcing the upcoming event for the first time. It read in large font: "April 22nd, Earth Day." And then it went on. A disease has infected our country. It has brought smog to Yosemite, dumped garbage in the Hudson, sprayed DDT in our food, and left our cities in decay. The carrier is man. Can you tell me the story of how Earth Day got its name, but how the idea of the teach-in that Senator Nelson had remained foundational um, to, to the concept of what Earth Day was? So, so Nelson...
1: Um, and, and he never wrote down anything about the aha moment when he had the seed of the idea that became Earth Day. But, but apparently he was flying back to Washington, having gone out to California to see about six months after uh, the, the devastation in the wake of the first, unfortunately only the first, great oil spill. In Santa Barbara, and 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 he read about this a tactic that was used by people who were opposed to the Vietnam War called the teach-in, which was essentially a kind of politicized extracurricular activity on on a couple dozen college campuses in the mid '60s, where opponents of the war and and proponents of the war would come together and argue. Was organized by the opponents they were convinced that that would inspire people to to action that it would mobilize them against the war and and nelson was he he was one of the first senators to oppose the war that was one of his most courageous moves um but he was inspired by that he thought you know maybe the president has failed on this congress has failed on this maybe young people could could really Carry the ball and make the environment a national priority so he he promised in Seattle in september nineteen sixty nine that he would organize a nationwide environmental teach-in and and at first he was only envisioning it at a, some small number of campuses only on college campuses uh, but and he didn't know anything about how to do this you know he's but that point was a fifty three year old establishment figure he wasn't some young radster uh and uh he he rejected the advice that he got from uh, a good friend that he that he tried to make it a hierarchical top-down kind of thing instead he decided basically anyone who wanted to have a teach-in could have it and they could do anything they wanted and he just trusted that that would work out that 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 would involve a lot of people and they would do great things and he was right uh, and And quickly, this overwhelmed his staff. There was a lot more interest in it than than he expected uh, uh, and and k to twelve schools got into it and then people in communities wanted to have events that weren 't tied to educational institutions so he hires this this small number of twenty somethings who had been activists mostly in other causes in the sixties to help him organize it uh, and 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 they found this hipster ad guy in new york julian koenig who was willing pro bono uh to come up with better names they they thought environmental teaching sounded too academic even nelson's advisor thought that but that he wasn't able to come up with a better name and and julian koenig comes up with the name earth day uh and then this really blows me away this is the part of Gaylor nelson's genius was he really he really didn't try to micromanage so right these twenty somethings decide Earth Day is a much better name and they take out this ad. And as far as I could tell, they never asked him whether that was okay. <laughs> you know, they just oh, wow. did it. Um and and then they changed their the name of the of the, you know, they, they worked technically for this not for profit that Nelson set up called Environmental Teach in Inc. They couldn't legally change the name, but they they changed the name on the stationery and everything else to Environmental Action. You know, again, they were mm. trying to suggest that that they were about action and protest and transforming america but but the teach in idea still was very very powerful and um, most earth day events were places that people talked about these issues it was an unprecedented discussion that involved you know potentially 20 million people and and tens of thousands of speakers Um, who at most had never spoken publicly about environmental issues. And these discussions were very intimate. Uh, Some of them were soul searching in the words of the New York Times. Um, And the the media too got into it. So you have all this media discussion, unprecedented media coverage, and then you have these much more intimate settings where people are talking about these issues. Mm -hmm. And together, that was transformative. I think a lot of people thinking about these issues for the first time realized they cared about them a lot and they were willing to do a lot to try mm-hmm. to solve the problems and to keep doing it, often for decades.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, I'm really struck by, you know, you, you already mentioned this, but his willingness to let go and the profound significance that had. And I just wanted to kind of revisit that because particularly from today's today's perspective, it's almost impossible to imagine a U.S. senator Starting something like this, and then just being like, uh, oh, I'll let it go, have a life of its own, and I'll put the kids in charge, and hopefully, it, it's it's a thing." But you know, I'm not going to micromanage it. Like that doesn't happen.
1: <laughs> no, like, I t- know, I agree. Uh, and he didn't just let it go. I mean, he worked like hell,
0: right, right, to
1: publicize it and to raise money for the staff and to right, you know, uh, and, but his and,
0: his ego didn't seem to get no, in the way.
1: He didn't think of it as his thing. Um, he and I, I think the the way I've put it is he he led by encouraging other people to lead, and and that was brilliant. And and you're right, especially in politics, that's so rare. You know, most people in politics want to be the center of attention, and 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 he didn't. Uh, and in fact, you know, the New York Times the day after Earth Day, the man of the the man of the day was the the 20 something guy that he had hired Dennis Hayes uh, not Gaylor Nelson uh, but wow. um but it was actually Gaylor Nelson that set the whole thing in motion
0: oh, that's uh, and
1: and um so i i think that that modesty is so amazing mm-hmm. uh, and that 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 you know and i again i don't know whether this was just a brilliant intuition on his part or whether it was a little more carefully thought out, but, but I think he he understood that it would be more powerful if a lot of other people could take ownership of it, if they could make it their own. Mm -hmm. And they did. And that was one of the biggest discoveries in the book for me is Mm -hmm. how many people all across the country uh, had the idea to do this and spent months and months working on it. And, and those months and months were incredibly transformative for Mm -hmm. many of them. they were, not just an education on the issues, but people realized they had all kinds of skills they didn't think they had, or they had a passion they didn't realize they had. And and so many of those Earth Day organizers come away after Earth Day thinking, I want to keep doing something like this. And there were there were no, you know books with hundreds and hundreds of eco jobs that you could just pick, <laughs> right. you know, uh, that there, there were only a handful of things that were well-established careers in anything remotely to do with the environment. And a lot of these earth day organizers and many other people that just participated in earth day, they go out they, and they pioneer new career paths. They create new kinds of jobs and new kinds of organizations and new, new ways of being, you know, an architect or a journalist. Uh, or a professor for that matter um, to to uh, continue to work on this and uh, that that was only because they had already invested so much of themselves mm-hmm. in the earth day
0: mm-hmm. yeah, and the scale of the first Earth day is amazing. It generated twelve thousand events across the country and more than thirty five thousand speakers um, and and you write that this first earth day Brought opposites together in powerful ways. Can can you talk about how this big tent of unusual combinations of people gave us Earth Day?
1: Well, it was a big tent, and that too is almost inconceivable now. You right. know, Earth Day was celebrated everywhere. Right, red states, blue states, purple states. Uh, a lot of the places that I ended up writing about in the book are, you know, diehard Trump country now. Alabama, you know, Montana. They had incredible. Um, Earth Day uh, uh, events, and uh, so part of it was that it, it was much more bipartisan than you can imagine. But um, I, I think one of the places where it brought people together was it, it combined the power of the establishment. You know, Gaylord Nelson could open doors; he could do lots of things um, with the energy and the creativity of the grassroots. That was incredible, um, and and that was so different than some of the other huge events of the 60s uh that were either more establishment or more grassroots than earth day which was both right um it also brought together young and old and that was again something i didn't think about initially but was hugely important because that was a time you couldn't take that for granted i mean a, a lot of old folks Looked at college kids and thought troublemaker, mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and a lot of kids under thirty looked at old folks and said can't trust them, <laughs> mm-hmm, right. you know. But Earth Day uh, brought together intergenerational inter- 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 collaboration, all kinds of folks, and again at the national level, but also at the grassroots. Um, and uh, and again, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I think this it created this unprecedented debate about what people started calling the environmental crisis. And the debate didn't take place purely in the media or purely face-to-face. It was both. And I think that made it more powerful than it would have been in either of those places alone. Uh, and I think there's a lesson in that for our social media age. Yeah. Powerful as social media is, it can't do some of the mobilizing and the educating and the life-changing things that the face-to-face conversation and the face-to-face planning of Earth Day accomplished.
0: Right. So I've always. To me, it's always been strange that the environment is such a political, politicized issue as if pollution and ecological destruction don't affect everybody. And I just, when I read you talking about the kind of, um, you know, specifically democratic liberal intellectuals theorizing about this, I was like, is that part of the DNA of how we understand the environment and, and therefore it's so politicized in this country as a result?
1: It 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 wasn't though in nineteen seventy in in the same way. And and even conservatives, except for the most hardcore, you know, the, the, the John Bircher far, 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 far right folks, or the you know, the totally southern um segregationist mm-hmm. forever mm-hmm. conservatives, um uh even most conservatives understood that pollution was a real problem. Mm. you know there weren't deniers then they they disagreed sometimes with liberals, and as I said, there were liberal Republicans right. as well as liberal Democrats uh, about what to do about it. but there were a lot of conservatives that spent a lot of time in nineteen seventy trying to figure out what would be a conservative approach. Is there a way to address these issues without mm-hmm. big government and and um, uh, so for example, there were people talking about global warming wasn't an issue yet. Someone was talking about ca- carbon tax, but there were people talking mm-hmm. about pollution taxes. You know, that part of the problem was the market didn't force businesses to pay for the pollution. That, But if they did have to pay for it, then they would reconstitute their way of doing things so they right. produced less pollution. That was the market. You know, there were conservatives talking about that in 1970. Um, and uh, I, I, I think a, a couple, uh, you know, you could uh, there's a whole book about how the Republicans went from supportive to totally opposed or almost totally opposed um, but but I think the biggest thing that happened was and this is another irony you know that modern environmentalism comes out of the prosperity right. of the post war years, and the prosperity is causing a lot of the problems, but it's also creating the political mm-hmm. will to do something about them and and then in 1973 more or less the post-war economic boom comes to an end and and the whole rest of the decade is full of economic turmoil in fact unprecedented you know high unemployment and high inflation which was supposed to be impossible at the same time and and no one seems to be able to do anything about it so in that in that context it suddenly becomes possible to have people argue again what what wait a minute, we can't afford to keep going in this direction. Or, you know, these regulations are are an onerous burden. Uh, By 1980, you know, you have Ronald Reagan saying he's going to undo all the environmental initiatives of the 70s. He doesn't. Mm -hmm. He can't. Mm -hmm. But he tries. And he has a lot of support for that that was inconceivable even five Mm -hmm. years before or ten years before.
0: You write Earth Day was an educational experience as well as a political demonstration that rare combination enabled Earth Day to have both a long-term and short-term impact. In the book, uh, you tell this wonderful story of the the San Mateo High School in California and its biology teacher, Edmund Holm, who mentored students in the Ecology Club as they planned their Earth Day teaching. What happened there um, in in those interactions between the teacher and his students, and, and what does it reveal about what the nature of the first Earth Day was? Yeah, that, so
1: that's one of my favorite stories. I'm glad it struck you too. Um, and it's the sort of thing Gaylord Nelson himself didn't envision. You know, he didn't originally envision high schools doing anything. Right. <laughs> but, um, but at this high school in Santa Monica, the, the teacher was a nature lover. Um, but all the kids in the ecology club, most of them weren't. They were just interested in math and science, and they thought this was a cool thing, a you know, way to be less nerdy. Mm-hmm. Um, was also something that appealed to some of the civic minded people in the school so they're you know student body president cheerleaders um, you know th- they met the teacher and the students over lunch initially just once a week for months to talk about you know what what would an environmental teaching at their school be and they had the total support of the principal and and those discussions in themselves some of the participants told me were empowering, hmm. you know, that they, they, they weren't, the kids weren't used to having an adult listen seriously to their ideas about what they might do right? about anything. Right. <laughs> and, and, and then, you know, they had to start doing the planning and figure out who might speak and what the activities were going to be. And, you know, whether any of it was going to be funny, mm-hmm. even though these were deadly serious subjects, they decided they wanted humor. Um, And, you know, they, they had to decide whether to address politically difficult issues like population growth, which meant talking about sex, which you weren't supposed to do without permission. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, you know, they do all this interesting stuff. And as it gets closer to April 22nd, then they start, you know, the, the key organizers start meeting with, with the teacher at home every day. And again, you know, they, uh, he didn't tell them what to do. He had some suggestions, but it was their deal. Right. Um, but he, he nurtured them. Mm-hmm. He, he gave them the sense that they could do it. And so many people told me that, um, not just the high school kids that I talked about, a lot of the college and graduate school organizers too, that, that it was empowering mm-hmm. to work on this, that they, they came away with it with this can-do sense mm-hmm. that anything was possible.
0: It's so unusual yeah. to have an experience like that, that profound at that age. Yeah. Um, so you know, the institutional achievements in the wake of the first Earth Day are really remarkable. The formation of the EPA and the passage of the Clean Air Act in 1970, the Clean Water Act in 1972, the Endangered Species Act in 1973, all under a Republican administration, no less. But in 1990, just after climate change became a widely publicized environmental concern, there was a 20th anniversary celebration of Earth Day. It was also a huge event with more professional planning, better funding, and a more focused message than in 1970. But it didn't lead to an environmental decade that confronted climate change or any other environmental issues. As the first Earth Day had, um, as, as you write, can you... Can you talk a bit about Earth Day 1990 and what it reveals about how remarkable an achievement the first Earth Day was, and what lessons we might draw from those differences?
1: And it, it, it's interesting. It, you know, I, I, I often hesitate to, to, to talk about um, the, the, the personalities involved, but mm-hmm. so Dennis Hayes, and he was the guy, Dennis Hayes, who who was the main force behind Earth Day 1990, the 20th anniversary. So Dennis Hayes was was not Gaylord Nelson, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and Dennis Hayes, I think, drew exactly the wrong lesson. And mm-hmm. he, he's gone on to do incredibly interesting, important things as an environmentalist. But the lesson that he drew was top down, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and so mm-hmm. and Earth Day nineteen ninety, it, it had you know I don't remember the exact numbers, but let's say twenty or thirty times the budget of the first Earth Day. Mm-hmm. It had all these political consultants and Hollywood gurus and advertising mavens mm-hmm. pr- working pro bono um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: on, their, on their messaging and polling and tie-in merchandise and getting celebrities involved. Um, and, you know, so they, they made the mistake, I think, of, of hoping that they could just mobilize people. But mobilizing isn't organizing. Mm-hmm uh right. and mobilizing isn't empowering it doesn't take people new places you know and, and it's, you think about other you know advertising isn't about teaching you anything it's about getting you to buy you know something political messaging isn't about educating you it's about getting you to vote for this guy or woman rather than that person so it's it's mm-hmm. yes or no you know uh, earth day the original earth day was so much more complicated than that it left it up to millions of individuals to say, what does this mean to me? What am I going to do? Right. Um, it didn't try to marshal them all in one direction or to enlist them into a pre-existing cause. Uh, Earth Day 1990 did did those other things. It, it tried to get people to join groups that already existed, and they did. Environmental groups reached their n- new heights of membership mm. in the wake of Earth Day 1990. Mm-hmm. Um, and it certainly heightened the message that individuals what they consumed mattered. Uh, but it, I, I don't think, you know, when you go to a march, um, that that's very powerful, but it's, it's not necessarily life transforming. It's not right. going to change right. the way you think. And the same thing when you go into the voting booth. Um, so taking politics and mark and, and, you know, marketing as your models, uh, was a mistake. And right. they, they got a lot of people involved, way more even than the first Earth Day, and they made it global. But they didn't understand that the, the deepest change comes from the empowerment that's a much slower process and requires more give and take. You know, It's not just getting the message out and then having people hear it and do something.
0: I want to turn to your most recent work, which revolves around business and the environment. Um, with much of your recent writing, you're asking whether it's possible to green capitalism. And if so, what does that look like? You frame the question this way. At one extreme, critics of capitalism dismiss all corporate talk of sustainability as greenwashing, as a way to distract people from the fundamental destructiveness of the system. At the other extreme, the boosters of green business take for granted that sustainability is the inevitable next stage of the evolution of the market. Neither view is historically grounded. Why not?
1: It's really definitional. <laughs> so if you, it, you, you can define capitalism a variety of ways, but some of the ways of defining capitalism make it just theoretically impossible that it could ever be green. Mm. Um, so they're, they don't, they're not drawing on any historical data. Yeah. It's a theoretical argument. The other argument, the booster argument, I'd say the historical record already clearly disproves Right. Capitalism is not just going to evolve. Right. Right. To a more sustainable thing. There are all kinds of reasons why why the people that even that have tried the hardest to green their businesses or their industries haven't been able to do it. So if there's any chance of capitalism becoming green, the historical record I would say so far says it can only happen if there's a powerful movement, a social movement, a political movement that rewrites the rules that that changes what guides business um, so that that the default for business becomes doing the green thing rather than the exception
0: right well let's talk about a specific example uh, you write about DuPont, and you know at at some point in the late eighties early nineties duPont kind of decided to start to lead the way in terms of environmental sustainability and and you really asked the question of of how far can the company realistically go and how how much can they truly fulfill this ideal of of sustainability can you can you tell a little bit about the story of what happened with dupont and and what you drew from that
1: sure um so it's 1989 that they have a new CEO edgar willard and he says we need a new corporate environmentalism. That's pretty much a phrase that he coined. Um, and to think that they they have to go in the phrase of the day beyond compliance. They they can't just do what the law requires. That they they'll for all kinds of business reasons they have to actually do better. They have to start thinking about how to green operations, and that's not just true for manufacturing firms. Although it was manufacturers and particularly. Heavily polluting manufacturers that got the message first. Um, so I had already been thinking about what's the environmental impact of a company like DuPont, and how has it changed over time? And then I noticed that the CEO, Edgar Willard, becomes this national focal point for an effort to try to create a corporate environmentalism. Uh, and the next long-serving CEO and board chairman of DuPont, Chad Holiday, also becomes a national, international leader in this movement. Uh, And and for him, the key phrase was sustainable growth uh, that he tries to envision to to reorient the whole company toward some new areas that he foresaw as great needs if we were to become a more sustainable society. Mm -hmm. Uh, And both of them do real things that are were hard, and cor- in some cases, I would even say courageous. Uh, and they make dramatic improvements in certain ways, but in other ways, they, they totally fall short. And the, the most egregious of their f- efforts, that or non-efforts, uh, something that predated either of them, that, that one of their iconic products at DuPont was Teflon, still is, mm-hmm. uh, and making Teflon involved a chemical, usually just called C8, that they didn't make themselves. 3M made it, and they bought it from 3M. Uh, But well before Willard comes into office, uh, 3M begins to think C8 is not safe Mm
2: -hmm.
1: or could be hazardous in certain circumstances. They warn DuPont, and DuPont has some serious internal debate about this, and they decide not to do anything differently. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. That they're, and, and, uh, and neither Edgar Willard nor Chad Holliday ever reconsiders that decision. In fact, they do the opposite when, when the evidence of how dangerous it is to use C8 and, and how C8 has escaped from their factory in West Virginia and is polluting the water uh, and is polluting nearby land where they were dumping waste, um, uh, they double down. Uh, 3M eventually decides it's not going to make C-8 anymore. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and DuPont, instead of finding an alternative, builds their own C-8 factory in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And all of this is secret. Mm-hmm. This only comes out as a result of a miraculous series of circumstances, all of which could have easily not happened, that allow uh, an attorney, uh, Rob Bellott, um to... Slowly build the evidence of how much DuPont knew how f- great lengths they went to keep it secret, um, how they didn't uh, make decisions that they easily could have made that wouldn't have even been that expensive that could have avoided uh, a, a, an environmental catastrophe um, and the the more interesting discovery in some way for me with DuPont was they they tried to create um, sustainable alternative to artificial fibers like polyester and mm. nylon mm-hmm. and they tried to create a sustainable um biofuel as an alternative to gasoline and for that matter ethanol mm-hmm. and they put a huge amount of effort into it and uh and they didn't get the results out of it the financial results out of it that they hoped and and i I think that's a key part of the puncturing of the balloon of the boosters, right is that you know they they make it sound like if people just had the will, they could create all these green new products and people would buy them and they'd make money. Green is Gold is the title of one book.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
1: not that simple. Mm-hmm. First of all, it's not always clear what a more sustainable product is. um And most companies don't have any expertise in thinking about this. Uh, So they make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the market, the fundamental flaws of capitalism mean that greener products are always competing against things that are cheaper but dirtier.
0: Right, and then the public public absorbs the costs, the environmental costs of... of
1: Exactly. And and some of those products can still find a niche, you know, like the Prius uh, or, you know... Early on, certain kinds of organic food, um, but but a niche doesn't change the the world, right? Right. Uh, and it and it also doesn't make enough money for big multinationals like Dupont that are publicly listed corporations right.
0: to satisfy the shareholders,
1: right? And the shareholders rebelled, so Dupont doesn't exist anymore. And part of what the part of what the shareholders, the activist shareholders, were rebelling against was. The R&D enterprise, which which is crucial to sustainability, if you have to only think three months ahead, you're not going to be developing a lot of sustainable products. Right. The things that DuPont was trying to do took a decade or more. And um, that's hard, even, even if it's just a standard product, but especially if it's something that's trying to anticipate what would really be greener 10 years from now. Um, but, you know... The market doesn't reward that; it yep. rewards quick and dirty returns, not long-term, far-sighted thinking. And
0: you make this this point that I think is really powerful: that you know there there are two different types of making business more sustainable. There there are things like reducing waste and being more efficient, and um, and using fewer materials. Those things are all beneficial environmentally, but they also make the cost of doing business less. They save money for the company. And companies have very enthusiastically taken that side of um, kind of eco thinking on and, and often advertised how great they are for doing that. But there are other things that actually make the cost of doing business much higher and Things more difficult and more risky, and and less likely to to produce shareholder value, um, and those are the those are the things the companies haven't done well at all. Um, right. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and what you've seen with Dupont and and other.
1: Yeah. Right. So those those win wins where it's environmentally better and it's more profitable. Oh. Um. Are are usually in the category of what's come to be called eco efficiencies, and even those aren't always easy. That was another lesson for me in Dupont was, Woolard pushes his scientists, his researchers to 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 find ways to reduce la- waste, and you know their initial response is pushback. No, we can't do that. Are you crazy? <laughs> right. if, you know, if we could do that, we would have done it already. Um, it, it's going to cost more, or it's technically impossible. But a lot of times, thinking outside the box, in fact, allowed these win-win solutions, these eco-efficiencies. And sometimes the savings were gargantuan, really. Right, right. Um, and um, and it's, it's not all just in production processes. You know, um, Xerox realized that it could <laughs> take back copiers and use the parts in the copiers to, quote, remanufacture copiers. Um, and, and that would save them a lot of money and it would, and then they realized it would save them even more if the copiers were designed from the beginning to be disassembled and reused like that. And that was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of million dollars a year of savings. Um, but only, you know, someone had to prod them to do that. Uh, so it takes leadership, but then there are all these harder things where in the current business model, they're, they're not likely to. To be as rewarding as the alternatives, um, and at the worst extreme, you know there are incentives in the market right now to to make climate change worse you know there are lots of ways not just the fossil fuel people can profit from some of the things that are going on rather than trying to solve the problem. so if your actual goal is a green economy, whether it 's a capitalist one or any other kind of one then the rules have to change fundamentally. The way we understand what business is and what it does and what its responsibilities are have to change fundamentally um, because we're never going to get to a sustainable economy if some things pay and some don't that are green. Right. Everything has to be pay to be green, or right. we have to get to a system where that's not the standard judgment anymore. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah.
0: You. You've also done some really fascinating work around fashion as a driver of consumption, environmental destruction. Could you talk a bit about the story of the beaver and kind of the uh, the ascendant merchant class in Europe and, and the wide-ranging impacts of the fashion aspirations on on rivers, meadows, wetlands in North America, that kind of thing?
1: The reason fashion loomed so large for me was, um, you know, there's only so much that you can eat or drink no matter how wealthy you are, you know? there's there's a biological limit <laughs> um and and that that's true for a lot of other things that we consume but but fashion creates this potentially unlimited demand
2: mm-hmm.
1: that that if something goes out of style and you're no longer willing to use it even if it's perfectly functional in every other way and then you buy something new that's that's an unbelievable demand on resources to have essentially insatiable appetites right um, and it, it it started with clothing and it, especially with the beaver hat uh, that became a fashion item in Europe and then in and, and then in the US uh, but in the 20th century it's expanded to lots of other things you know your your smartphone is a fashion item Apple is a fashion company in many ways you know cars became fashion items and were sold on style as much as anything else and and so many other things have become like that that that's become a major form of marketing is to get you to be dissatisfied with what you have because it no longer is cool right and then to junk it and get something else and 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 that cycle is incredibly destructive but it it starts with beaver um the poor beaver you know their pelt happened to be really good <laughs> for right. making hats right. better than wool which was the alternative you know it was easier to shape and it was water resistant and it was easier to dye, and it and it was more expensive so it also Mm. therefore was more of a status object and you know um at the beginnings of modern capitalism the rising merchant class wanted to have a way of showing that they were important and and having stylish attire and especially stylish hats was part of it and as a result all the beaver in in europe are wiped out except for the very far reaches of siberia then the new world new to europe at least is opened up to exploitation and there's lots of beaver in the northern u.s and in canada and over the course of the centuries the beaver are nearly wiped out in north america Um, all to satisfy this never-ending demand for stylish new
0: hats it always struck me as kind of the perfect example of what environmental history is because not only did this fashion sense in europe originally um wipe out the beaver beaver for the most part in north america but because beavers were no longer making dams then it changed the dynamics of the rivers and right. it it destroyed wetlands, and it it changed the dynamics of whether there were meadows or not. And this this very lofty idea of fashion and what people thought of themselves in a in a distant land in Europe had these very real and immediate environmental impacts on the landscape in North America. And that, that to me that seemed to be such a a perfect encapsulation of the power of what I, environmental history is, combining those two things.
1: You're right. You know, um, That's part of the, the world of consumption too that's so dangerous is that where we consume can be half a world away right. from where the impacts are, mm-hmm. the greatest impacts. And we have no way of knowing that. I mean, we've gotten better in the last couple of decades at trying to find ways to find that out. Um, but, but it's still incredibly hard, and th- as the distance between producers and consumers, and even that's almost a, 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 a totally outdated way to think about it. I mean, um, that you know your your smartphone. Wh- who's the producer of that? I mean, there's a zillion things in it. And most of them are made in different places. They might be assembled in one place.
0: <laughs> yeah, and lots of rare earth, minerals right? Exactly mined, mined from every corner of the earth. Right,
1: exactly. So it's it's become very hard to be responsible as a consumer. You know, whereas five hundred years ago, mostly people were still ordinary people, still consuming things that were made close by,
0: mm-hmm. and they
1: they would know if there were really serious consequences of that.
0: And that's something I've always thought about. You know, with the the success of Earth Day, you know, you know, you talk about during Earth Day, and and the the legislation that came after Earth Day targeted specific pollutants and chemicals, and the reduction in those chemicals in the United States in the subsequent decades was dramatic. Yeah, dropped it's huge, dropped ninety percent or seventy five percent or or whatever. Enormous, enormous progress but at the same time with a lot of that manufacturing and pollution being exported around the world the overall emissions and pollution globally has gone up dramatically and it continues to rise today Great. and in a way you know one of the contradictions of all this is you know the success of earth day and our success of cleaning up the environment in the United States has allowed us to to be ignorant and blind to, to what has happened around the world as a result of our consumption here. And no longer is our consumption tied to the effects of that production that, you know, they're separated. They're separated geographically now. And, and, you know, climate change in some ways is going to start to bring it back together because everyone's going to be impacted by it. But, um, anyway i you wrote an article called can capitalism ever be green you seem to be saying that there's a middle way when it comes to making our economy sustainable so is there a middle way and and what does that look like if there is
1: so my argument is partly pragmatic what would convince people that you can't make capitalism green if we really try hard and we fail then a lot more people might be willing to say okay now we really have to think outside the box. What What's the alternative?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, so I want people to really try their hardest, which we haven't come close to doing, right? For sure. Um, but it has to be, and this is why I think it's so important for environmentalists to to get out of their comfort zone and and realize that they need to think about this as much as Yosemite. Um, that. The, the, you can't save capitalism from within the firm. You you can't rely on enlightened leadership of companies, and there are some enlightened leaders of companies. Right. But they can't do it unless the rules change, Right. and they exactly. can't change the rules themselves.
0: Right. We the, can change the, the
1: rules by voting. Right. We can change the rules by voting or by acting differently as as... Um, as citizens in other ways, or as you know, consumer citizens, um, or we can f- create new legal tools, but um, but the rules of the market are set mostly outside the market, and and we need to think about what the rules are that reward people for doing the right thing, and that's not easy to do, and it's even harder to get the the social movement and political power that would insist on that mm-hmm. um but uh uh and again that speaks to a deep a, a deeper challenge for environmentalists you know the the movement early on when it was still mostly about saying no could could be could could see itself as self-contained mm-hmm. but now that it's about trying to or should be building a, a sustainable society um there's no such thing as a sustainable society that's an unjust society, right. And, and, and so the movement that would be needed to check the powers that are causing all kinds of unsustainability in our society, not just environmental, would have to be a much broader movement than an environmental movement.
0: right: Which I think is, is starting to happen. We, we are starting I hope so. We are yeah. starting to see you know anti-racism and environment, and human rights, and immigrant rights, and LGBTQ plus rights, you know, all of it is seemingly starting to converge in some powerful way.
1: Yeah, I think young people especially get this. Right. That, that they understand that, um, you know, uh, uh, I, I wish they had a better word for it, but that we need intersectional, <laughs> right. Right. um, activism. And, and, and I think that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I, I I think even if you just start thinking again, saying again and again, this is a sustainability movement now. It's not an environmental movement. That inherently forces you to challenge some of your assumptions about who's in and who's out, and who will mm. care and who won't.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And well, this is this is a giant question, <laughs> but. What do you feel like you've learned through your study of environmental history and through life in general about our relationship to the rest of nature?
1: You know, I, I, um, um, you know, I, I happened to discover the field at a time when I w- was trying to figure out how to be most socially useful while also studying history. Right, uh, and I came to believe that this was the freshest, most exciting kind of history going. Um, and I, I had to learn a lot of things that I didn't know anything about. And I, I had some dark moments when I was overwhelmed. I remember, you know, almost throwing up. And it is a grand challenge, and it's incredibly interesting intellectually, but it's also important. Uh, and and because so many interesting people are thinking about it, it's constantly stimulating. It's a real community. Um, so, so, um, you know, and I, 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 of course, part of that involves, as we've said a number of times, rethinking our place in the larger world. Uh, but I actually, I actually think about that on a day-to-day basis, surprisingly little,
2: <laughs> mm.
1: you know, um, but at some level, one of the things that I've come to appreciate, I guess, through all my work is you don't have to have the big answers to to do great things day to day, you know, mm-hmm. uh, right. um, to, to to see opportunities to improve things. I, I hadn't thought about this till you asked, but but I, I, I don't wake up every day thinking, how can I, you know myself and how can our society get right with nature Mm -hmm. that's that's just in the background um even though that's hugely important uh i'm i'm really more day-to-day focused on you know what's some big aspect of that that i can work on Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and that other people might might be also working on and might Mm -hmm. benefit from what i do
0: Mm -hmm. no that's great and and what have you learned about how we protect life on earth have you kind of changed your thought about that over time?
1: Probably, I guess, this, the, the biggest thing is this sense that we have to outgrow the limits of the environmental movement and, and, and we have to start thinking much, much more about sustainable society.
0: Mm-hmm. And, it's, it's inclusive of everything. Yeah,
1: and, but that also involves creating something that doesn't exist, rather than restoring something that we've wrecked or stopping something from getting wrecked right. that's being wrecked right at the moment.
0: Um, Which gets into kind of exciting utopian thinking too. You know, I, I was I've met some Sunrise Movement folks last summer, yes, and and they were really keen on this. They're just like, we need to bring back utopian thinking. We need to envision something that we've never seen before because that's what we need.
1: Right i agree and that's that's wonderful that you were hearing that from the sunrise people because um they give me a lot of hope yeah and the very name of their organization obviously is yeah brilliant is brilliant and um uh so yeah you know um what what do we want is something that doesn't exist yet parts of it exist and parts of it in, are close enough to existing that it's easy to imagine how they might exist. But other parts, we really have to stretch our imagination. And that, that also, again, moves us well beyond the technological. That's art, that's literature, that's mm-hmm. film, You know. that's eth- right. ethics, that's lots of things.
0: Right. Well, I've asked you to bring a quotation to read that's been particularly meaningful on kind of your journey in life. Could you end the show by... By reading what you brought and telling the story of its significance to you. So this is
1: uh, a line from Rachel Carson's *Silent Spring*. Uh, it's in a chapter called *Needless Havoc*, and it's—it's. Um, it's, uh, I mean, the whole book is so fabulous, but yep. and the whole book is full of these incredible questions. That, that the more you think about them, the more profound you realize they are. And so here's what she says that um, I keep coming back to. And I also force my students to think about it. The question is whether any civilization can wage relentless war on life without destroying itself and without losing the right to be called civilized. And what I love about that um, a couple of things but but uh, she's saying this is a twofold challenge. one is purely practical. are we going to survive
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the other is moral uh, even if we survive, will we still have the right to call ourselves civilized? Mm. will we still be proud of of what we've done. Um, and, uh, and, and I, I, think as we're trying to imagine what a sustainable society would be, you know, it clearly has to be one that doesn't destroy itself, but it also has to be one that's moral, that's upstanding, that's, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's, uh, just right. And, and, and so she's pushing us to think about how to make sure that what we do, build is
0: both right and we can't we 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 can't enforce environmental sustainability in some authoritarian way because that would right contradict everything else we know of as as moral and what we value
1: and the word life is brilliant Mm -hmm. because it, it 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 encompasses Every aspect of human society and then every other living thing. So, even though she wasn't really thinking about social issues, um, you can take it that way. You know, we, we have to do right by all people mm-hmm. as well as all other living things. Right. Uh, we, we can't wage war in the same way that we can't wage war on nature, we, we can't dominate some people and assume that that's going to be sustainable just as we can't try to dominate nature and assume that's going to be
0: sustainable well that was beautiful and i'm i'm so glad you ended with Rachel Carson as as you know i i named my son his middle name is carson um after rachel carson's <laughs> so she is um enormously important in my life um and and you you know i knew about rachel carson she played an important part in my life before I studied with you, but, but then your work working with you in graduate school really reinforced her as, as really my guiding light through my life, really.
1: Well, thank you. And thank you for pushing me to find a quote <laughs> <laughs> because I, at first I didn't think I would come up with one, but as soon as I thought about it, I said, no, 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 no. There's that line from Rachel Carson that I think about over and
0: over Awesome.
1: and, and, um, you know, we, we need to answer that question the right way.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been fabulous. Even though we talk all the time, this has been an, an amazing treat.
1: For me too, John. I'm so thrilled again that awesome. that we're colleagues, not just in the grand scheme of things, but here at the University at Buffalo.
0: Thank you so much to Adam Rome. Go to our website at chrysalispodcast.org to see the quotation Adam read from Rachel Carson and check out a list of his work, including The Bulldozer in the Countryside, The Genius of Earth Day, and the wonderful Audible Original Lecture he did on the history of Earth Day. Chrysalis is produced and edited by Gabriela Cordoba vivas with music by Daniel Rodriguez-Vivas, design by Unae Regrero, and mixing by Juan Garcia. Isabella Nert is our social media producer and assistant editor, and Shub Jane is our web developer and assistant editor. If you enjoyed my conversation with Adam, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Contact me anytime at chrysalispodcast.org, where you can also support the project, subscribe to our newsletter, and join the conversation.